Well, Father, thank you for the encouragement from your word that we've just sung, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. In fact, you hold us in your hand. You uphold us as though we are an eagle's wings. Father, we need your strength. We are very weak people, and we are easily discouraged and defeated, and we are so prone to failure. And so thank you for your grace, and thank you for your mercy. And thank you for your faithful love. Father, thank you for the bedrock of your word now that we can turn to, that we can remind ourselves that we're not alone on this journey, and that we have the uh, direct revelation from you, and we have truth in our hands to guide us in a world that has lost its moorings. Father, we commit ourselves now to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you know that there is uh, something fascinating about watching other families live out their lives? Hollywood figured this out some time ago, didn't they? Um, Who didn't enjoy watching the Cleavers live out their lives? How about the Cartwrights? Did you enjoy watching them live out their lives? It's gone on and on, hasn't it, to the incredibly uh, sick family like the Simpsons and the dysfunction of the Osbournes and then watching uh, Kate and John plus eight disintegrate. And uh, we just have found it fascinating to watch families live out their lives. All of us, weren't we addicted to uh, the Cosbys? They were a great example, weren't they? Have you heard, though, of the Abrahamsons? You know the Abrahamsons? Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And there's more. It certainly has the makings, doesn't it, of uh, phenomenally discouraging, dysfunctional television today. We find it in our Bibles, though, from ancient literature. It is Genesis chapter 29, and I invite you to return there as we are making our way through the book of Genesis. And this morning, once again, we are in the life of Jacob uh, and uh, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And hence, I think their last names were Abramson's. And uh, Jacob uh, is now in the middle of of a marriage that has taken on dimensions that he had no idea would ever happen. Let's read our text this morning. And it's, uh, again, in these narrative passages. And as these stories unfold, the passages are somewhat long. And so to help us kind of grasp what's happening, I want you to watch for three key players, of course, in this story. We've introduced ourselves to it a few weeks ago, but we're going to read now, beginning with chapter 29 of Genesis, starting with verse 31, we will complete chapter 29, and then we will read a large portion of chapter 30, we'll go through verse 24. Follow along in your Bible, but as you listen to me read, and I'm reading from the NIV, the New International Version, it reads well, it is an incredible story, click your imagination into gear, But as we read the first part of our message this morning, we will focus on three characters, three unhappy people. 
And they come up in basic order in the passage. You'll see Leah, an unloved wife. You'll see Jacob, an unwise man. And you'll see Rachel, an unfulfilled mother. Let's read their story and let's understand what's happening. Out of the text then, we're going to ask two questions that are kind of interesting. And then we will conclude our time with three life lessons, one from each of our key unhappy people. My Bible entitles this section, Jacob's Children. You could entitle it, Jacob's Incredibly Dysfunctional Messed Up Marriage and Home. Here we go. Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Before we read further, in case you weren't here, let me just say this. You remember, or you'll recall if you know your old Bible stories at all, that Jacob had worked for his uncle Laban out of love for this girl, his daughter, his, Laban's daughter, Rachel. And Jacob had made an arrangement. He had no dowry money, and so he had worked for seven years. And Laban had pulled a switcheroo on his wedding night and married off his older daughter, Leah, whom Jacob did not love. And then Jacob then made an arrangement to work seven more years. And so after the week of wedding feasting with Leah was over, he was able to take Rachel as a wife. And then he worked seven more years. And so without intending to, Jacob becomes a polygamist. And here he is. When the Lord saw Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. <clears throat> Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons, so he was named Levi. <clears throat> Excuse me. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? And then she said, Here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her I can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Lehi saw, excuse me, when Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. 
And then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, verse 14, Reuben went out into the fields. Recall, you'll recall that Reuben is Leah's oldest son, firstborn. He's perhaps seven years old or towards seven years old at this time. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the wheat fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah. She became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said... God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Indeed, in some irony, God will add another son. And in fact, this Rachel, who so longed to have children to the point that she made everyone's life miserable around her, will ultimately die in childbirth in a future chapter. What a remarkable story. Did you get all that? Our three unhappy people, um, of course, find themselves together without a plan. They didn't intend for it to be this way. And then there's pitiful Leah who is so unloved and she, she longs for her husband's attention and God gives her the ability to have children. And we had noted before that though she was the rejected one, she was the one in your King James Bible, it might say she was hated by her husband Jacob. That's a strong word. It's literally what the Hebrew word means. The commentators Uh, all seem to line up with the idea that it it, it was a, a, a base lovelessness. It wasn't so much that Jacob hated her and wanted to murder her, but Jacob had no use for her. Jacob had no time for her. Jacob had no love for her in his heart. She was nothing to him. The idea of the contrast of one wife loved, the other hated. Pitiful Leah, perhaps less attractive than Rachel. She was older finds this Jacob who comes to the ranch to find a wife, falling in love with her younger sister. We do not know if she was in on the chicanery and schnookery that got her into the bedroom on the wedding night and joined her in marriage with Jacob. 
She very well may have been involved and been open to that, thinking that it was her right as the older sister to become the wife of Jacob before Rachel. Probably not even realizing that Rachel would become his wife as well. We don't know, although polygamy very likely was part of the culture at that time. You see Leah crying out in the very way that she names her babies, don't you? We don't know Hebrew, and the names have meaning. Reuben literally in Hebrew means see a son. But Leah did something clever. She named her boys with significant meaning, but she named them with a play on words so that the Hebrew word that she used to name her son also sounded like something else that was a message to her husband. For example, Reuben, see a son, sounds like the Lord has seen my misery. The idea of the Lord seeing is in the name Reuben. Simeon, it's the idea of the Lord hearing It means the Lord heard. But in the Hebrew, it sounds like a word that would mean the Lord heard that I am hated. And so she names her sons in such a way that she's she's trying to get her husband's attention. It's pitiful, isn't it? Levi, attached. Sounds like a concept in Hebrew that would say, my husband will be attached to me. I want him to connect to me. Judah, finally, it would seem, in her fourth child, and after the fourth son comes, she has just sort of depleted her emotional well. And she's so tired of crying out for her husband's attention that she finally just says, I'm just going to praise the Lord. Judah, I will praise the Lord. Praise. We commented a couple weeks ago, if you were here, that it is interesting that Jacob, who worked so long to have a wife, in a matter of weeks has two wives, and ultimately, in just a matter of a short time, probably months, has four wives, as each of these wives will give him a handmaid. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. It seems likely, if you look at the chronology of the passage, because after the next seven years is up, it's not long after that time frame. It's about that seven-year time frame, the second seven years that he works for Jacob, that he, or Laban, that Jacob goes to Laban and says, now release me, I want to go back home. It's very likely that within that seven years, these 11 children by four women are born, which means that at any given time, two or more of them were pregnant. This is a reality show that uh, is incredible, isn't it? That's Leah, the unloved wife in our story. How about Jacob, the unwise husband? One of the things that we see in Leah, of course, is this longing for love, What we see in Jacob is a lack of leadership. We see a lack of wisdom. As you read the story, and I've read it repeatedly, the more I read it, the more I just realize that Jacob, like so many husbands, when their wives are unhappy and they get in situations that they feel out of control, that as the husband and as the man, he begins to just do whatever it takes to try to keep peace. Instead of making wise choices and wise decisions and saying, okay, let's do this, let's do that. 
Whatever the women suggest, he does. And it's the idea, not so much that he's in charge, it's more, okay, whatever you need, honey, whatever you say, I'll do that. Trying to keep peace in a home where it's obvious that not only does he have two wives who can't stand each other, they're sisters. What an incredible situation. And did you notice in contrast to his grandfather Abraham and even his father Isaac that when Jacob realizes that his wife Rachel is barren and she in no uncertain terms reminds him of this reality, there's no record in there that Jacob turns to God. We've suggested that Jacob is on somewhat of a spiritual journey now and that he is awakening to the reality that he is the son of promise and that he is beginning to have a personal relationship with God himself, not just the God of his grandfather and the God of his father, We're going to see that God is still at work in Jacob and there seems to be a a spiritual barrenness in his life, somewhat of a lack of faith at this time that manifests itself in his home to where he lacks leadership and spiritual leadership. Leah, the unloved wife. Jacob, the unwise husband. To Rachel, this unfulfilled mother. Living her life with this overwhelming agenda that is, I must have children. There's a lot in this passage that has to do with the cultural context. When you read your Bible, you need to carefully consider the cultural context. You know that. One of the things that we don't get right away, just like we don't get polygamy very well, we don't get the the stigma, the embarrassment, the shame in this culture of the barrenness of a wife. It was humiliating. It could say in a somewhat of a public, kind of a glaring public manner, potentially, my husband hasn't been with me. People could take it different ways. But just culturally, you need to know that when you were a married woman, it meant everything to you, to your world, to have children. Three very unhappy people. Out of this then comes, in my mind, two questions. You read a passage like this and you see three people ends up being five because the next thing that kind of strikes us in the story which, from which our questions come that I want to answer here is that Rachel comes up with this strategy to suggest that her husband Jacob take her maidservant, Bilhah, and that she sleep with Jacob, her husband, so that she, in a sense of proxy, could have a baby that would be, in essence, Rachel's baby. She was Rachel's property. She was identified completely with Rachel. Bilhah was. There was no one else who had any authority over her but Rachel. And again, this is a cultural thing. Do you remember in the story of Abraham that Sarai suggested this to Abram? And so Hagar came into play. And you have something that for almost all wives, I can't imagine a wife in our culture who would ever begin to suggest that their husband take this other woman. We have, of course, more clean, less physical medical, technical ways of doing this. 
It raises a number of ethical situations and even dilemmas where you can take the seed from other people or the parts from other people. Let me just say it in general terms. You know exactly of what I speak. And we can bring them together and we can have surrogate parents and we can do different combinations of different people. This is sort of a down-home-on-the-farm way of doing that. Tell you what. Take my girl here. It continually in the passage uses the euphemism, and he slept with her. That's a euphemism for the coming together of the man and the woman in the physical act. Jacob is very interesting to me in his response, and that leads me to question number one. We see Bilhah and we see Zilpah, these maidservants. We see this incredible baby competition going on. Did you feel it? I'm having these babies, and Leah, so desiring your husband's attention and love, and intimacy, in a sense, thumbs her nose over at her sister Rachel. Nah, 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 nah. You can't have babies. And Rachel is just very distressed by this, as we'll see. She becomes very angry. We'll see that in a minute. Look closer at that. So question number one, to me, out of the passage, three unhappy people, two interesting questions, and then three life applications. I didn't know how else to outline the passage. Two interesting questions. Question number one. Why is it that Jacob, who we know is a man of God and a man of faith, now, he is early in his journey of faith here. But have you ever noticed as you read your Bible that in the New Testament, that even in Jesus' own words and other people always would say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's included. He's he's one of the patriarchs. What was it with this man of God that he was so willing to engage himself with these multiple wives. The two servant girls were in essence concubines in this passage and only in our Bible under the study of the patriarchs in this time frame are they called wives. Later in the Bible when we encounter men taking multiple wives they will just call them concubines. But in essence, I guess that was understood in their community, these had become Jacob's wives. I would suggest that there's four reasons why. And we can learn a little bit from this. Number one is, his father modeled it. His father modeled it, didn't he? Abraham did this. Sarai suggested it. Abraham did it. Why? To try to make mama happy. You got to appreciate what's going on here. Listen, you all know it. Somebody said it to me just the other day. I can't remember. We were eating supper. Somebody said, you know what happens when mom's not happy or something. If mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, what do you got? Mama number one, mama number two, mama number three, and mama number four, and you're living with all of them, and then any of them happy. You got issues. His father modeled it, and one of the lessons that's a life application to the men here is I think that we have to be so careful with the way we live our lives from simple practical things to deeply spiritual and moral matters in our lives. You are modeling with your life and your lifestyle for your children. You know it. It's in slow motion, so you don't feel it all the time. I was cleaning in my garage this week. It it, it is just shameful, my garage is. It's, It's indescribably shameful. But it's not my fault. 
is hereditary. My garage looks just like my dad's garage. And I made a vow after I buried my dad and I had to go clean his garage that my boys will never have to clean out my garage. If I don't watch it, my son will have to call the church in for help to clean out my garage. And I literally worry about that when I go away on a trip. I think, what if I don't come back? So Richard Beto has direct instruction that the moment he hears of my death, he's to back up trucks to my garage and clean it out and sweep it and get it out of there as fast as he can. Take it over to his father-in-law's and put it with the rest of his father-in-law's stuff over there. He'll never even know it's there. Do you find that in your own life? Do you find that you so much remind yourself, even as you mature in age, and maybe even more so, you are so much like your mom and dad, aren't you, in so many ways? And one of the things I'm reminded of in this passage is that there is a generational, a generational domino effect, isn't there? And one of the reasons that Jacob did this dumb stuff, and it's dumb and it did not have God's okay. God in his mercy and grace works within the failure of mankind. But he did it because his father modeled it. Secondly, he did it because his culture approved it. It was culturally acceptable. Nobody thought anything of it. I'll tell you, when things are culturally acceptable, we have to really work overtime to look at our Bibles and to examine our hearts and make sure we do things as approved in God's eyes and not in the eyes of men. And this is what Paul meant in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we are pressed into the mold of the world. Listen, we are highly influenced by our culture, are we not? In so many ways, things that, that only pagans would ever do are right on the platform of the church. Pressed in, turned, twisted, remade, and molded, all culturally acceptable. And we have no clue if it's biblical. Lifestyle matters. Selections that we make in all areas of our lives. The culture approved it. I can do this. We may not have this kind of polygamy going on. This one commentary that I was reading, though, reminded us that, in a sense, it has become the norm, even in the church, for what we, he called serial polygamy. As the divorce rate of the church and the body of Christ is almost exactly the same as the unsaved world. I know that if you're in that situation, you didn't mean it. You didn't plan on it. But there's matters like this in marriage, isn't there? That we have to really stand for and fight for the next generation because the culture is turning the ship and turning away. There was a quote from the uh, Salt Lake Tribune of all newspapers on the matter of polygamy that I ran into from September 20th, 1998. It says this, Polygamy may be abhorrent, abhorrent, abhorrent to most Americans, but in the global community it is common, normal, and accepted. 
Although the percentage of men in the world who have more than one wife is relatively small, as many as a third of the world's population belongs to a community that allows it, says Israeli anthropologist Joseph Ginat. There are many plural marriages in Africa, the Middle East, and in Asia, said Ganat, a professor of social and cultural anthropology at the University of Haifa. A quote from the Salt Lake Tribune. I think that's interesting, isn't it? There's an example of how where you live affects how you think in your culture. And that's really true. Something that to us is just crazy is something that is much more commonly accepted in perhaps one-third of the area of the earth today, in the world today. Well, the father modeled it, the culture approved it, and approved it, and I think it's also noteworthy that, number three, his wife encouraged it. His wife encouraged it. If I asked wives here today, do you have much influence on your husband? You know what almost every wife would say? Nope. Can't get that guy to do nothing. But nothing could be further from the truth. Every man here would say, my wife highly influences me. Women, you have tremendous influence on your husband. And one of the things that as a wife, as a helper and a helpmeet, God's partner for your husband, are you helping your husband make wise decisions or are you hindering your husband from leading well? It's an important question. Jacob, as I've emphasized, was probably keeping peace and his wife suggested it. And number four, his flesh easily accommodated it. Why did Jacob do this? His father modeled it. His culture approved it. His wife encouraged it. And the flesh accommodated it. Okay, honey, if you insist. That's question number one that I thought was kind of interesting. And I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Why did he do it? There you go. But there's another question that comes out of this um, passage as we looked at it with these three unhappy people. A second question is, does the Bible clearly condemn polygamy? Does the Bible say enough about condemning polygamy? And you might say, Pastor Van, why would you, you know, you're always running short on time. Why are you going to talk about polygamy here for a minute? What? That's kind of an interesting subject, a little bit weird, but can I suggest something to you? That as strange as it sounded to our ears 30 or 40 years ago to hear someone say they wanted to be involved in a same-sex marriage, that the exact same arguments and the laws that are being changed and the, the, the state's rights to marry and the downplay of the, of the DOMA ruling and so forth, that it, it is close behind for other bizarre marriage arrangements And I would suggest, namely, polygamy is the next one that is going to be common in our culture. You watch the next 20 to 30 years if we don't have a cultural shift. And the church is going to have to decide if they're going to take a stand on polygamy, just like they have to make a decision to decide whether or not they're going to stand against homosexuality even as it becomes widely accepted in our culture, even to the point that you are considered somewhat um, a cavemanish or from the dark ages if you don't get it. Well, I don't get it. And the reason I don't get it is because the Bible doesn't get it. All right? And so can I suggest that though we don't necessarily have 
a chapter and a verse. It's a little bit like the matter of slavery. We could wish that the Bible more directly addressed and, and shot it down. It dealt with so many other issues. How come polygamy seems to be basically widely accepted in the Bible? Let me suggest a couple things. First of all, that it's really not widely accepted in the Bible. And if you stop and think about it, every case of polygamy in the Bible is a mess. Do you remember where the first one was that we encountered in our study of Genesis? It was Lamech, the barbarian Lamech, who pounded his chest and boasted to his two wives that he had killed a man. He was pagan. Abraham got into the situation, and it's done nothing but mess up his whole family. And to this day, we live with the ramifications as the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael still hate each other to this day. And our globe is in turmoil over it. You have Esau, Jacob's brother, who right away took two wives from the Canaanites. All right? And then uh, you have Jacob doing it, so you kind of have this early on patriarchal thing. It definitely seems to be the norm that when Moses was leading, that monogamy was God's plan, and that in the Hebrew mind, marriage was monogamous. There is, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 18, you don't have to turn there, In the Mosaic law, there is specifically, in Leviticus 18.18, the prohibition of a man to take a wife of his wife's sister. It speaks directly to the point of a man marrying and living with, as a husband and a wife, with sisters. It doesn't say about unrelated women, but it definitely prohibits marrying sisters. 500 years later, God will condemn what Jacob does here. And so we then look at men like David and Solomon and the kings. Was that an example of of godliness? Is that a model for the church today? Is it okay for these men? David was a man after God's own heart. He had at least eight wives. No. David's home life was terrible. David is a disgraceful example of a father and a husband, and he was probably, you could argue, one of the most unsuccessful husbands in all the Bible. His children committed incest. His children committed murder with one another. His children were thieves. His children tried to murder him. King David, on the family front, was a horrible failure. And it was largely due to marrying all these women. King Solomon, you're going to hold him up? Look how many wives he had. You can't even count them in the concubines. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. King Solomon, at the end of his life, was an utter failure in the eyes of God because of trying to please his multiple wives. So let me suggest a, a biblical mindset on this. By the way, let me back up just a minute because I have a pretty good quote from Newsweek that a few years ago in Newsweek magazine was responding to the HBO special uh, series, not a special. HBO runs a series, um, that, and I believe it's still running. Um, it was intended to run 2010. I know it's run about the last three years called Big Love. Maybe you've heard of it. I hope you don't watch it. Sweetly titled HBO series Big Love, Polygamy Comes Out of the Closet. Under the headline, Polygamists Unite, Newsweek informs us of 
polygamy activists emerging in the wake of the gay marriage movement. There's a quote right from Newsweek magazine. In the wake of the gay rights movement, the polygamists are, are after it. They've got this show going now. Polygamy rights is the next civil rights battle, one author writes. He continues, polygamy used to be stereotyped as the, pro- as the province of secretive Mormons, primitive Africans, and profligate Arabs. With Big Love, this HBO series, it moves to suburbia as a mere alternative lifestyle. Newsweek notes these stirrings for the mainstreaming of polygamy have their roots in the increasing legitimization of gay marriage. That's Newsweek, secular people talking. Okay, it's not us. And it's not even the Mormons. I don't know if you noticed, I couldn't resist buying a National Geographic off of the store shelf at the grocery store when I saw the cover in February of 2010, Polygamy in America. And this, this is about one Mormon man out west. One man, five wives, 46 children. It's worth buying just to look at the pictures. It's incredible. Presented in a very positive light. So what is our biblical mindset? Let me quickly just rattle off a couple things. Most of you know this kind of thing. Let me organize it in our thinking. I've already said that every example of polygamy in the Bible is negative, that the Hebrew mindset of marriage is monogamy, and that is based on, number one, the biblical argument for monogamy, not polygamy, is that in creation, God explicitly modeled monogamy. In creation, God explicitly modeled monogamy. One man, one woman, this is Genesis 2, 24 and 25, we'll not take time to turn there. But that is where God told the man to leave his father and mother and to cleave unto his wife. And the whole model and everything that is there is set up for one man and one woman. It doesn't work if you bring multiple partners into play. I think that as much as they want to say something like this is very successful and they can think of life in no other manner, I think that you would bear witness in your own emotional psyche that God did not hardwire us to share a husband or share a wife. We're not designed that way, and it goes back to creation. Secondly, in the church, Paul exclusively called for monogamy. God in creation explicitly modeled monogamy. In the church, Paul exclusively called for monogamy. You can find this in Titus 1.6 and 1 Timothy 3.2. He says almost exactly the same phrase when he's giving the outline for the criteria for church leadership. Elders, pastors, deacons. He said, you must be blameless, the husband of one wife. In another passage, he says, you must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, denying polygamous leadership roles in the church, which at this time, in the New Testament, in the Greek culture, there was some polygamy that was going on and was acceptable. So if it's okay, why did he say you can't lead in the church if you got that going on? And furthermore, you have to remain blameless or be above reproach. You have to have just one wife. You start getting multiple wives... You can be like Jacob. You're going to end up in places you never dreamed about. Number three, in marriage, God is exhibiting a pure monogamous love between Christ and his church. This is Ephesians 5. Since our time is gone, we'll not look in more detail at that either. But do you remember that one of the reasons that God established marriage between a man and a woman is that he calls himself the groom and the church the bride? 
and that above all he holds for a pure bride. His church is to be a sinless, pure, monogamous, loyal, in love with the groom church. And that in the letters to the churches in Revelation, one of the things that they are chastised for is that they have fallen in love with somebody else. Was their groom not good enough? You don't multiple wife it or multiple husband it. Well, we've seen three unhappy people. We've tried to answer two kind of interesting questions. Why did Jacob live like this? And what does the Bible really have to say about polygamy? In conclusion, can I suggest that there are three lessons that are a little more personal and emotional and might apply to you today, but um, I'll not have time to expand on them, but let me just list them. First of all, I think there is a lesson in the loneliness of Leah. And I want to encourage anyone here who might be in a loveless marriage today. Leah really captures my heart in this passage. It's pitiful. You might find yourself in a loveless marriage. I had a number of things I wanted to say about that, but can I suffice it to say that in verse 31, at the beginning part of the verse, it says, and God saw Leah. Can I tell you, wife or husband, who maybe you feel trapped in an unloved marriage, that God sees you. He does hear you. And that this is a time for you to just really focus on your relationship with Christ. The loneliness of Leah, focus on Christ. The jealousy of Rachel, someone highly dissatisfied with her life. Did you see that in chapter 30, the verse, couple verses? When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. She was consumed with this. She was jealous of her sister. What a horrible way to live. I think that one of the greatest tests of Christian maturity is to be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. When someone gets something that you really want and you don't have. Listen, if you are filled with bitterness or jealousy because of incomplete or seemingly unfulfilled areas of your own life, you need to go to Jesus and let him fill it. Number three, the anger of Jacob. There's a lesson there as well. Jacob became angry, chapter 30, verse 2. And he said, am I in place of God? He really said the right thing. He couldn't do much about it, but he got angry. And you can sense in Jacob the spilling over of the frustration of the muck in which he finds his home. He said, how did I ever get here? Listen, you may find yourself in circumstances that you never dreamed you were going to be in. I'm not suggesting there's any polygamists here this morning. I'm just suggesting that life can take turns and curves and ups and downs, and you can down the road find yourself in a place you never thought you'd be. And you're angry about it. Like Jacob, I'm just mad. Can I tell you simply that in James 1.20, it says that the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life of God. One of the first things you're going to have to do is get rid of your anger and go to God with your life circumstances. I'm sorry, I don't have more help than that right now. We must close. Three unhappy people, two interesting questions, three life lessons from the loneliness of Leah, 
It's a time for turning your heart to godliness. Through the jealousy of Rachel, don't let it eat you up. The anger of Jacob does not work the righteousness of God in us. It's time to turn things over to your heavenly Father, isn't it? Let's bow in prayer. Father, um, what an amazing family this was. The reality of the hurt and the pain, and then even that which was passed on to these boys later on in life, we see them hating one another and trying to kill one another, perhaps had its roots in their childhood with the bickering in the home. Father, would you... If we are here today with lonely, empty, unloved hearts, fill us up. Help us to know what it means to be godly in Christ Jesus and to find our satisfaction in Christ. That is not easy. I pray that you would meet needs at that level. Father, if there are jealousies and unfulfilled passions within us that cause us to be angry at the people around us, would you forgive us? And help us to trust your sovereign control and rule over our lives. And let you be God and to be quiet in your presence. And to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice, even if we don't get it. And then, Father, that we would not be like Jacob and just spill over in anger because of the frustration of the details of our lives. But that we would learn to cast our cares upon you. Would you help us, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray.